Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive approaches to the history of popular music. In this, our first episode, we will start more or less at the beginning by detailing some of the qualms people have had in thinking seriously about popular music, specifically regarding its status as a mass art. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. Popular music tends to be denigrated by philosophy and many cultural critics. It's not perhaps all that surprising that philosophers prior to the 20th century didn't write about what we think of as popular music. After all, popular music in the form of mass art, as we shall see, only developed gradually over the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries. It is perhaps more alarming that philosophers such as Gilles Deleuze continued to disparage popular music well into the 20th century. For Deleuze, art, properly speaking, gives rise to new affects, new ways of feeling, and he seems to believe, endorsing a view espoused by the likes of Theodore Adorno, Dwight MacDonald, and Clement Greenberg, that popular music simply recycles familiar modes of feeling. In other words, popular music, because it is so thoroughly inscribed within the marketplace, is, despite its appearances to the contrary, a conservative form of musical expression. It has to be in order to guarantee profitability. Following this line of reasoning, we might say that most of the scandals arising from the world of popular music involve fashion, lyrics, imagery, and the behavior of artists, rather than anything directly bearing upon the music itself. I think this is ultimately wrong, as we shall discuss, but this manner of looking at popular music is so deeply ingrained. So many of us enjoy popular music despite the fact that we more or less accede to this view that it is worth stating or starting from the biases against taking popular music seriously as an object for philosophical contemplation. Noel Carroll, in his book, A Philosophy of Mass Art, does a fantastic job of laying out many of the philosophical objections to mass art while providing both a definition of mass art and a justification for considering it a true form of art. In what follows, I will be adapting some of his discussion, which is not focused on popular music, to our concerns. A very familiar argument is what we might term the elitism argument, or what Carroll terms the passivity argument. And one of the main progenitors of this argument is, of course, the art critic Clement Greenberg, who really emphasized the avant-garde side of art. His concern was that art was creating an ever-increasing divide. Serious art, the avant-garde art, art that pushed boundaries, art that forced us to question the very status of art as art. And then there was kitsch. There was the kind of art that was easy to uh, understand, that was easy to grasp, and that therefore you pay very little attention to, you didn't engage with directly, and really it's art in name only. Kitsch is not truly art. It's bad art, which in Greenberg's uh, sense of of the world is a contradiction in terms. 
This is familiar to those of us who are familiar with, with music history from the, the arguments of Arnold Schoenberg, the great avant-garde composer of the 20th century, who said that art is not for everyone, and if it is for everyone, it is therefore not art. This kind of elitism argument is appealing in some ways, and I think a lot of us probably succumb to it, uh, whether we realize it or not. It's appealing because it gives us the sense that what we're doing when we're listening to popular music or when we're engaging in mass art is somehow the stakes are lower, that it's not as... as uh, sophisticated and therefore is elitist and is removed. So the elitism argument has been turned uh, against itself to a certain extent that we now think of, or some people think of uh, this idea of, of listening to the Rolling Stones, let's say, as an act of defying elitism, of, of engaging with our animalistic or, or simply just popular sensibility of the world and then that, uh, our attempt here is to remove ourselves from elitism. The argument that follows from that is what Carroll refers to as the massification argument, but it basically boils down to the idea that anything that is mass-produced simply can't be all that good. The progenitor of this argument, or at least the one that, that Carroll refers to, is Dwight MacDonald, who had a close relationship with Greenberg, so it's not surprising that their arguments cohere in various ways. MacDonald compares uh, popular art to chewing gum. He thinks of it as just as dispensable. Anything that is produced for the masses has very little value in his mind. This, is, this art is manufactured, as he puts it in his essay, Theory for Mass Culture. It's manufactured for mass consumption by the ruling class and is not an expression of either the individual artist or the common people themselves. So it's neither true art, it's not an expression of a true artist, nor is it an expression of the people in the manner of folk art. And we're going to come back to this distinction between popular music and our current sense of the term and folk music or folk art. So for him, artistic creation can never come by committee, and a lot of mass art obviously does. Films, while they do have a director, and we tend to think of that director, at least some of us think of the director as being a kind of auteur, a kind of author, a film is made by a committee of people. There are multiple writers, and it goes through many uh, different versions. The script does. Then you have the director of photography, who is not the same person as the director. And you have uh, all sorts of people that are involved on all sorts of levels. And that's true of popular music as well. All you have to do is see the making of any album if, uh, as a documentary. I remember when I was younger, the one that was very revealing to me was the, the making of an album by Aerosmith. And you could see how involved the producer uh, was in shaping those songs, that they're coming with these raw ideas that are then shaped into something else. This is, this is artistic creation by committee to a certain extent, and McDonald finds that suspect. For him, this is what he calls mid-cult, which is the same thing as kitsch, that mid-cult is an attempt to appear to be art while not really being art, and that anything that appeals to all must appeal to the lowest common denominator. So it's not what is best in us, that's appealed to, but rather our lasciviousness, our interest in sex, our interest in, in uh, wealth or whatever, our, our lowest possible urges. Carroll rightly points out that uncommon production is not incompatible with common reception, that maybe what it is that we enjoy in art is specifically that which doesn't simply appeal to our base instincts, but that we as humans endeavor to access art because it brings us into contact not just with, maybe in addition to, uh, our baser instincts or our basic needs, but also with something higher, something more important. 
Perhaps the most notorious and, and even celebrated argument against popular music and, and popular culture comes from Theodore Adorno. Theodore Adorno, of course, was not only a philosopher, he, he was a musician himself. He was a composer who studied with some, uh, at least one very important uh, composer in, in the avant-garde, Alban Berg. And so Adorno's uh, opinions about music have carried quite a bit of weight. Now, Adorno makes an argument that's somewhat surprising, perhaps. Uh, what he suggests is that our approach to, to um, popular music is not the way that we sometimes characterize it, which is to say that it would be spontaneous, that it, it attracts us in our sort of immediacy of our body and so on. He says that's actually not what's going on with popular music, that popular music, because it is uh, manufactured by the hegemonic force, by the, 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 um, the power structure that's already in place that is eroding our freedom, that what that popular music then is doing is that it is reinscribing our slavery to that system. And therefore, we don't react spontaneously to popular music. Rather, uh, what we do is, is we kind of give ourselves over to it in a kind of cerebral manner. It's an act of will and defiance of our better interests to like popular music. That in some ways, we realize the lie in popular music, and we sing along anyway. Uh, you can think of, for instance, when you hear a song that you didn't used to like and you find yourself singing, singing along to it at first. And the question then becomes, are you singing along to it because you like it now or because it's familiar? And because popular uh, culture in general makes the familiar what we like. It's not so much a matter of our making a judgment as just the constant repetition of, of things makes us believe in the product. So Adorno claims that all popular songs are mere commodities that operate through standardization on the one hand, there are only a limited number of predictable forms, and interchangeability on the other. The parts can be changed out with basic substitutions without making any substantial difference. So most songs that, that we listen to have a pretty straightforward uh, form. You have the verse, you have the chorus, and you have a bridge or a break somewhere. And all of those uh, forms or, or sub-phrases uh, within the forms, they all have a number of prescribed progressions, harmonic progressions and melodic devices that get used over and over again. So then all commodities, according to Adorno, offer an average down, vitiated, non-experience that simply reinscribes our own subjugation to the powers that be. The issue for popular music studies, then, in dealing with, with Adorno, uh, seems like it, we, we have no way out. He seems to have offered us no means of escape from the drudgery of modern capitalism, that the best we can do is to enjoy, or, or rather, actually, to pretend to enjoy, our domination and our subjugation. In essence, we have an argument that's rather similar to what I already laid out with Deleuze, there's no opportunity for new affects because we just get the same thing over and over again. Now, Adorno had also thought about, of course, the what he thinks of as the paradox of 19th century classical music, where we've moved away, or composers rather, had moved away from having patrons to relying on a middle-class audience to support them. They had to sell tickets. Now, what that meant is that 
you had what, what, as I said, Adorno refers to as a paradox. On the one hand, you have to give people something that they're going to be able to recognize and understand right away. Because if they don't, then they're going to feel alienated from it. They're not going to want to hear it. They're not going to want to purchase it. But on the other hand, you can't just give them the same thing over and over again. Because then why buy it? They've already gotten it before. Right? So you have to, this is the paradox, you have to somehow give them a piece of music that they recognize and understand right away and yet seems entirely new. It's a paradox because it seems almost impossible to have this happen. And yet, this is exactly what happens in what I think of as the better popular music all the time. We hear something familiar, we hear things that we can relate to, it's a familiar beat, right? It's got a backbeat, you can't lose it, for instance, in the, in the famous song lyrics, and yet there's something new to it. Now, there's one more thing I want to talk about, and I'd like to talk about this in greater detail on a later podcast, but just to broach the subject briefly now, one of the problems that Adorno seems to have with popular music versus classical music is that classical music works on an understanding of progressive time, at least for Adorno's thinking. It's not that there's no repetition in classical music. Of course there is. It's not that there's no predictable phrase structure in classical music. Of course there is. The point here is that in classical music, you tend to have a sense of time where you begin with something small and you march across the the length of that piece until you get at the end where it all kind of comes together and all makes sense so that there's one continual development. Does this apply to every piece of classical music so-called? No, of course not. But the kind of music that he tends to talk about, Bach, Beethoven, that kind of music tends to be developmental in nature. Popular music, by and large, is not developmental in nature. It's repetitive in nature. Now, what I will suggest at a later time is that this isn't a flaw in popular music, but rather it is a different way of constructing time, a different way of constructing how we relate to time and how music immerses us in a kind of knowledge of time that, as I'll say when we come back to this issue in a, in a later episode, uh, relates very well to some of Deleuze's ideas of time that he adopts from, from Nietzsche's notion of the eternal recurrence. So if we are to believe these critics, then popular music is standardized, it's interchangeable, it's formulaic, does the same thing over and over again, it's a top-down structure where a uh, conglomerate, a business structure is dictating to us what we should and should not like. And so it's fashion-driven, not aesthetic necessarily. That it works by averaging everything down, making everything as simple as possible, and therefore not engaging us as individuals, but rather reducing us to the role of automatons. That we just all think alike, listen alike, act alike, because we're being structured, we're being constructed by the music to which we listen. Now we're going to address some of these issues in upcoming episodes in more detail. But for right now, what we need to understand is that popular music, as we engage with it, is not simply folk music. In fact, that's part of the argument here, right? Popular music is a top-down thing. It's coming from business structures. It's coming from conglomerates. It's coming from uh, groups of people, that are committees that have come together to create popular art. We saw this already with film. It's true also of a lot of, of popular music. So how did this come to be? How did popular music move away from being a folk art into being what we'll call a mass art? 
If popular music is to be distinguished from folk music, that distinction relies upon the fact that popular music, in the sense in which we shall employ the term throughout this uh, podcast, is a mass art intended not simply for one's own consumption and use, but rather for a widely disseminated public. Imagine for a moment we live in a small rural town in, say, Pennsylvania in the late colonial period. Let's arbitrarily choose the decade of the 1750s. Let's imagine that our neighbor Frank plays the violin, he calls it a fiddle, and has devised a tune on it that he finds pleasing and that we too heartily enjoy. Frank's wife, Anne, puts words to it so that it becomes a courting tune, that is, a tune concerned with young, inexperienced love, the kind of love that creates that warmly melancholic strain of nostalgia so often evoked by popular art, especially music. Now, Frank and Anne's tune catches on locally. You and I sing it daily. Our neighbor, John, he plays it at his ramshackle piano. I play it on my guitar as my wife sings. In short, the song has become quite popular, at least on a local level. We learned it originally from hearing Frank play it. Then others learned it from hearing us play it. The tune will, like a game of telephone, gradually change from one person's rendition to another. But none of these variations makes it into a new song. It just accrues slight changes as part of the tradition, however short-lived, of its performance. Frank and Anne didn't publish it, why would they? Such tunes are by their very nature relatively ephemeral. They are part of our lived experience in our community. It would probably not even occur to Frank and Anne to consider the song a product at all. We can therefore say that Frank and Anne's song is popular music in the wide sense, but it is not mass art, not designed for wider dissemination, and therefore not popular music in our more restricted sense, the sense that we're concerned with in this podcast. This is an important distinction and it is what allows us to consider music that is not statistically popular to still be within the realm of popular music. So, not all popular music is a form of mass art, and yet what will primarily concern us within uh, these discussions is mass art. This has several consequences that we'll have to explore along the way, and for now we'll use Frank's song as a point of comparison. So first, mass art is designed for mass consumption whether that consumption actually occurs or not. Frank's tune is popular uh, and is consumed, played, by his neighbors, but its appeal derives from their connection to him and their connection to a relatively local notion of courtship captured by Anne's lyrics. The song was not designed as a product intended to appeal to a wide variety of people beyond Frank's community. In this case, it is beside the point whether or not Frank might have liked for his song to be more widely disseminated. All that matters is that wide dissemination is not really possible within Frank's world. Second, mass art is manufactured and distributed in such a manner that people get the same product in some material form. That is, mass art involves being a commodity. Frank's tune passes through the community by word of mouth. It changes and adapts as different people learn it and alter it to their tastes. This is a hallmark of folk art and folk music. A product of mass art is produced through some kind of manufacturing method, usually mechanical to some degree, so that it gives rise to objects that are all importantly the same. In technical terms, they are tokens of the same type. Think of tokens and types with reference to dollar bills. 
The dollar in my wallet is not the same as the dollar in your pocket. They are different tokens in the sense that they are different objects. But they are designed to be the same thing. They are the same type. My dollar is no better or worse a dollar than yours, provided, of course, I don't tear it in two or something. That means that if I own a copy of sheet music by a specific publisher, and you own a copy of the same product, they are both the same in all practical matters. Even if I bought it weeks before you, my copy is no more or less that song than your copy. In short, mass art depends on mass appeal, mass production, and mass distribution. It focuses on products, tokens, more than originals, and doesn't have to be actually popular. There are plenty of mass-produced consumer items that fail to find purchasers. In short, Frank's tune is popular, locally at least, but it is not mass art. Mass art, however, will soon become the dominant mode of popular music in the United States and throughout the world. Uh, we're now thinking back to the 1750s here. By the 1750s, when Frank wrote his song. Mass art, in the form of mass-produced and commercially distributed song, was already fairly well established in Great Britain. We'll talk about this in, a, in an upcoming episode. And therefore was somewhat familiar to colonists like Frank, particularly depending on precisely where Frank lived. Part of what made the American colonies attractive to migrants from the British Isles, the Netherlands, France, and Spain, was that it made available to many what was limited to the few in Europe, land. For now, suffice it to say that unless you lived in a port city, like New York, Boston, or Philadelphia, your interactions with the market would be relatively limited. And obviously, no market means no mass art. The question then becomes, how did the early United States move from the folk music and localized distribution of the colonies to the popular music, mass art, and national distribution that became increasingly prevalent over the course of the 19th century? That will be our concern in the episode on the first U.S. copyright law, which was passed in 1790. I'll look forward to talking with you then. Thank you for listening to this first episode of Sound Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you wish to know more about this podcast, please visit www.chadwickjenkins.com and click on the page for Sound Philosophy. Also, feel free to write me at cjenkinsmusicology, all one word, at gmail.com. That is cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. This is Chadwick Jenkins. Thank you, and I hope to hear from you soon.